We have that scenario with Lido having claimed a lot of the early market share. How do you see this dominance affecting the decentralized ethos of Ethereum? The reality is that they cannot decentralize beyond their entity. And no matter what they do within Lido, it's still a centralizing force. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we're very excited to be back in studio again with a very special guest. We have Superfizz joining us on the other side of the mic, active member within the Ethereum ecosystem. We got to get Ethereum to get more active, okay? there's We, we got we to get this thing stuck out of the doldrums. I'm hearing a lot of people... You know, they're they're getting fed up. They're overexposed and ETH is underperforming. No, but there's obviously a lot of stuff, interesting stuff happening in Ethereum. So I'm, I'm excited to take a moment to um, dedicate an episode to it. We did obviously Solana uh, when we were at Breakpoint. So I'm super thrilled to take the, you know, 30, 45 minutes to kind of give a temperature check of everything that's happening in Ethereum. We're going to focus a lot on staking as well. So, sir, maybe we can just start with your your journey. This is the first time you know you've joined the show. Happy to have you lend your voice to our audience. You've obviously this isn't your first podcast rodeo. You've got quite the quite the nice setup over there. Tell us a little bit about your journey and and what you're up to now. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Superfizz. I uh, call myself. Uh, well, I used to call myself the Beacon Chain Health Consultant. Uh, now I like to call myself a, a the Ethereum decentralization advocate. Um, so I'm not I'm not directly affiliated with any organization. I did start an organization called ETH Staker um, about three years ago. Uh, it went really well, uh, but uh, I feel more able to interact as a solo actor. So uh, they are still thriving, and I'm uh, off doing my own thing. Um, I got started with Ethereum. In about 2014, 15, I read the white paper. Um, I had been a Bitcoiner before that, obsessed with Bitcoin. Uh, and I read that white paper uh, and literally no idea what it meant, but it felt big. Uh, honestly, like I, I had these ideas what a smart contract would do, um, but it was it was difficult for me to grasp. Um, I started mining on the Olympic test net and uh, haven't stopped since then. Uh, and I just... When we shifted to proof of stake, I uh, decided to become more active in community leadership. And uh, that's sort of how I got here. So let's walk through the uh, transition to proof of stake. When we, we've kind of, you know, we're a few, we're quite a bit of time out since the transition. When you think about metrics or, um, different types of ways to measure the success of that transition. What do you, or what can we point people to? Let's maybe do a bit of analysis on the success of the transition, if that's to the extent that we can. Yeah. So simply put the transition to proof of stake, um, exceeded everyone's expectations. Mm. And I, uh, I try to be a realist. I am an optimist by Mm -hmm. nature, but I try to be a realist, um, it went flawlessly. Uh, we stopped one block on proof of work and the next block was proof of stake. And we have been humming along since then. Uh, there have been 
um, I think there was one period of non-finality, mm-hmm. which right. means that blocks were still processed, transactions still went through, uh, but we didn't have this kind of stamp of finalization. Um, that's not really even terrible. Bitcoin doesn't have a concept of finalization, so we at least had as much security then as Bitcoin has every day. Um, but we have, I want to say, let me go check because I'll get it wrong. We just processed the million beacon chain validator, which doesn't mean there are a million active validators. There are about 890,000 active validators. That would mean 110 have exited, uh, 110,000, but uh, 28,000 stake ETH, which is a reasonably 20% of uh, Ether is staked. Um, the best places to look for these metrics, uh, I would begin really at beacon chain, B-E-A-C-H-A-I-N, mm-hmm. uh, for a global overview. Uh, then I'd look at somewhere like rated.network uh, to show the kind of distribution of uh, the different entities. Um, and maybe something like NodeWatch to get a sense of how many nodes are operating on Ethereum. We have about 12,000 individual nodes. Uh, and uh, it, all of this isn't without struggle. We do have struggle with uh, some centralization issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are things that we are addressing, and um, things seem to be going well. How do we? Uh, how how does this sort of community overcome those pain points around centralization? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think a lot of people assume that when Satoshi Nakamoto solved the traveling generals problem, that he somehow also solved a centralization problem. Uh, but that's not that's not realistic. We we haven't solved. Uh, something like civil resistance. We still cannot forcefully decentralize a network. And so right now we have the potential to de- decentralize Ethereum through running nodes by you know people staking at home. But unless the community actively promotes that decentralization, the incentives will tend toward centralization. Uh, and so there, there are some ideas in the pipeline to reduce those incentives. Um, But the reality of this whole situation is that um, we have Byzantine fault tolerance uh, developed by Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm -hmm. We have a smart contract layer developed by Vitalik Buterin. We have this proof of stake mechanism that was proposed by Vitalik and really instantiated uh, by Danny Ryan. But what we don't have is uh, this really, we don't have a protocol level decentralization mechanism yet. Um, And that's where we are. How would you say Ethereum's transition to proof of stake has impacted Ethereum's social layer? Uh, you know, mining is an outright competition. The the more hashes you can squeeze out of your cards compared to your neighbor, the the more successful you are. And so it is inherently a selfish operation. Uh, proof of stake mm-hmm. kind of changes that to... Uh, the more uptime every participant has, the more robust the entire network is. And the more robust the entire network is, the more successful all of us are. So we have this this kind of shared incentive for all validators to be online all of the time. Uh, that gives us a reason to have a community, uh, our community being primarily ETHstaker, where we can share information and share techniques for uh, running really efficient operations. That's the reason. Before the merge, did you anticipate liquid staking becoming such a hot 
topic? Uh, it's it's complicated. I yes, uh, I did. I knew that, uh, and and the Ethereum researchers, everyone everyone following this knew that liquid staking derivatives would be popular um, because there's a large subset of people who don't want to uh, essentially lock up uh, their their ether or they don't want to operate from home. Of course, we couldn't predict what it would look like. At the time, we expected to see a lot more uh, healthy and robust competition. Uh, but what really happened was uh, one provider who launched right out of the gate uh, with a lot of marketing and did really well, and then uh, several other platforms that may have been better designed um, or were waiting on you know protocol improvements or um, waiting for the right time to launch. And, uh, you know, obviously we, we have that, that scenario with Lido having claimed a lot of the early market share and the competitors are now playing a game of catch up, uh, which it, it can be a difficult, a difficult mm. setting. I mean, the, the, the market share is quite significant in the Ethereum staking landscape for Lido. How do you persevere? How do you sort of see this dominance as, affecting the decentralized ethos of, of Ethereum? Yeah. So for me, as Superfizz, Ethereum is only valuable if it's credibly neutral. Uh, a, a blockchain that is not credibly neutral is essentially worthless. And so if any, any entity or any provider really on any layer uh, kind of gets to a position where they can control the network um, or even alter the network or stall the network then uh it's it's a it's a real uh hit to ethereum the benefit that we have is that at, to this point no one has ever crossed the th the 33 percent threshold no one has ever had enough market mm -hmm. share to actually um delay finalization and i should point out as i said earlier even if someone got to 33 percent uh it's in their economic best interest to to support the network, it does reduce credibly credible neutrality. Um, if they were to uh, change anything, they they would be the outliers and they would leak. Uh, they would lose ether for that. So an attack is expensive, but we really want to be in a position where it's it's not just expensive, but it's also impossible. Um, and so uh, our work right now as the community is to promote solutions that further decentralize the network to promote home stakers. Um, I love to say that uh, an Ethereum validator is a unit of generational wealth. And so I, I want to see community members who have 32 Ether running those solo validators at home. Um, and with the idea of, you know, doing it for 50 years, uh, something that is, um, you know, a long-term passive income stream. I'm such a boomer. I have all my Ethereum with Fidelity. I wouldn't even be able to run a validator if I wanted to. Such such a such an embarrassment to the crypto community. <laughs> really, Fidelity. Like, that, that is a surprise. Unbelievable. Um, I, because they only they have two assets, and so all my Bitcoin and well, not all my Bitcoin, but Bitcoin and ETH. Um, it's just so easy having it all there in one spot. Yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm a fan of Fidelity. I, I would probably choose them if I were choosing a institutional provider. But I would also tend toward a 
uh, a sector level. I'm missing out on this generational validation stream of wealth. Well, I mean, if you're holding ether, you, you, you essentially always have that opportunity when you or, you know, your family decides or recognizes that opportunity to, um, to make mm-hmm. a transition. So it, the opportunity persists. What do you think is like keeping, like, is it a, is it an educational campaign? Is it a, um, is it maybe just maybe folks not seeing the, the value there? Um, obviously if you have 32 ETH, you believe in it to some extent. How do you, how do you think the community can push folks sure. into that direction of, of, of uh, maintaining a validator at home. So one of the most important things to realize is that proof of stake is in its infancy still, even though it's been online for whatever, a year or two, two years, three years, um, it's still under rapid development. And so it's not really conceivable to, um, to sell a, an appliance that manages itself and say, here, mom, plug this in. It's going to stake your ETH. Um, I wish that were possible. And we do have great solutions like Dapnode and Avado that are plug and play solutions. Even those require configuration. Um, and so I think it's natural for people to feel hesitant about, you know, putting $65,000 on a, you know, little machine and hoping that it works until they've kind of gotten into it. Uh, once you get started, mm. you sort of realize, wow, it's, it's not as hard as I thought it was. Okay, so going back to sort of the 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 dominance of Lido, um, the Ethereum Foundation put out a statement, basically, um, in which they expressed concerns about a single liquid staking derivative exceeding certain thresholds. How can the community, uh, vis-a-vis, I don't know, different governance structures, address these emerging um, these these types of challenges? What, Obviously, there's been there's Lido has also has its own response, yeah. which is that they've taken steps to address the centralization con- concerns by expanding its validator set, introducing dual governance. Um, so I guess we, we kind of touched on some of the things we can do. What what things can they do vis-a-vis governance structure? Um, and then how do you think these measures uh the measures by Lido are sure. mitigating these risks. Uh, so to be fair, I, on one hand, I appreciate their mitigations. On the other hand, um, they are still within entity mitigations. And so um, anything that Lido does to, to decentralize within Lido is still Lido. So, uh, so I keep saying Lido because I lived in Sarasota, which was right next to I, Lido Key. So I don't think it matters. <laughs> Say whatever you choose. I, I, I don't. Um, but so the, 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 the reality is that they cannot decentralize beyond their entity. The only way to maintain decentralization in the network is to uh, main, is to decentralize external to Lido. Uh, and so people within Lido say, well, our government stru- governance structure is improving. We have this DVT module now. We are decentralizing the beacon chain. And that's mm-hmm. that's not really factual because uh, Lido as an entity is the centralizing force. Uh, and no matter what they do within Lido, it's still uh, a centralizing force. And really the only thing that we can do as the community at this point um, is educate people about the risks of this, 
you know, loss of credible neutrality. There mm. are definitely protocol level solutions, but uh, respectfully, no one is going to approach protocol level solutions until Lido crosses that threshold. Uh, and th- that 33% threshold, they can, they can dance up to it. And, um, you know, essentially people are going to issue warnings uh, and say, hey, this is a concern. This is a concern. Uh, you referenced Danny Ryan's paper. Um, mm-hmm. There are talks at DevConnect this week about the risks of their centralization. But below 33%, education by the, by the community uh, and things like um, redirecting uh, DAO treasuries to stake with different uh Uh, different providers. Oh yeah. That, I mean, that seems like a really obvious solution. So there's a large, um, a large treasury manager called Karpatki and they uh, in the past Mm -hmm. have delegated a lot of their treasury staked funds to Lido. Um, They have since recognized the risk of this centralization and have begun um, decentralizing. And again, we look at that as, and that really can move the ne- the needle if you just if you really if you have a a number of treasuries kind of make that effort. Sure, and, that's and, and that again, lots of money. That's an education part. It it took it took time to educate them on the risk of centralization. Another thing that is happening um, are um, and these are key operators in the market. Absolutely, yeah, and that's you know we're talking about some of the biggest DAOs. Uh, ENS DAO uh, comes to mind. Um, yeah, there are several others, but you know, at first I was concerned that Karpatki was was maybe not um, not acting in the best interest of Ethereum. But having seen mm. this this turn, uh, I now regard them as an as a positive player because they're using their influence as a treasury manager to uh, to balance the chain. The the other it's big thing that's happening right now. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just saying it's an interesting company. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Interesting business. I don't know a ton about them um, other than what I see in relation to this. Uh, The other thing is is the concept of vampire attacks. And uh, this is something, Mm -hmm. again, that um, not not directly. The Ethereum Foundation doesn't really act as one uh, one body. Uh, There are people who work with the Ethereum Foundation who make personal statements that may reflect you know, general thinking, Mm -hmm. but, uh, they're almost like the SEC. I don't know if they're almost like the SEC, (laughs) but, um, we have vampire attacks by, um, swell network and by diva, um, who are, they're essentially onboarding, uh, staked, uh, staked Lido tokens. And when they go, uh, when they, when they cash these in, They'll essentially convert staked Lido or staked Lido to- tokens, Steth, into their protocol token. As in, uh, they would sell the staked ETH, uh, the Lido staked ETH, into Diva staked ETH. Um, that bootstraps their program uh, and uh, sort of takes away some of the uh, Lido staked ETH. What do you? There's there's also been a lot of discussions about uh, enshrining liquid staking in Ethereum at the protocol level. What are your thoughts on this approach? And do you see other potential solutions to ensure decentralization in the Ethereum liquid staking ecosystem? So, I I haven't personally decided, and I think that that anyone who is 
an earnest thinker is still considering these options. I don't really think I trust anyone who says they have the answer. Um, but mm-hmm. one of the ways that, you know, I discussed two ways to mitigate. The, a third way to mitigate kind of deals with this enshrinement. It's a protocol level change. Um, and that protocol level change would alter the way that MEV is handled. Um, right now, a provider like Lido, the larger a provider is, the more opportunity they have for big MEV blocks. And so um, mm-hmm. they they have kind of an amplified effect for being larger. That's an unintended consequence. Mm. Um, and so what makes sense for the protocol is to really reconfigure the way the MEV is handled, um, maybe burn it, maybe distribute it uh, fairly, but not to reward uh, larger providers by hitting that lottery more often. Uh, th- they shouldn't have access to buy more tickets to big payouts. Rather, they should sustain on consensus layer payouts. Well said. You mentioned DevConnect. What are some of the other conversations you're noticing that are top of mind for folks more so on the development side of, of the ecosystem? Aside from some of the issues that we've just walked through, what else is top of mind? What are the builders thinking about? Scaling is always, um, it's always top of mind. Uh, we, I know. Have you seen these fees? Yeah. And that's, that is a big deal. It's always on top of mind. It has been on top of mind. Made me feel, brought me back to the Hasleon days of DeFi summer. Just yeah, well, felt nice and warm and fuzzy seeing, uh, you know, $50 for a swap. The, the great thing is Ethereum works and it works as intended. Uh, the, the struggle is that our success can also be our downfall. We're not ready to accept uh, visa level transactions, uh, but layer two scaling, this the implementation of, of EIP 4844, which we expect around January, will significantly reduce the cost of layer two scaling, layer two transactions. Uh, and that's, that's a, a major step toward scaling. Uh, and for anyone who has watched, Ethereum hasn't had a real scaling solution for uh, a couple of years now because we've really focused on hardening the protocol. Uh, and so when mm-hmm. uh, when 4844 goes through, um, you should look and, and see less than you know a tenth of a cent transactions on layer twos that verifiably check back in with the Ethereum main chain. And so... That's when I expect to see a flood of new use cases, um, sort of like what we're seeing with base chain right mm. now, um, Coinbase's chain. Just a lot yeah. of new and novel uses because transactions are cheap. Experimentation. Because, yeah, it's more difficult to – same thing with kind of Solana just because it's it's cheaper. When when you have sort of that flexibility, you can you can kind of – you know, what are the kids saying? F around and find out because yeah, it's just yeah. less expensive. It, it becomes a playground. Yeah. And right now, there's not a playground. And it feels like maybe that's why uh, it's missing a bit of this liquidity tail, tailwind that's being seen across the market. Base was, a, you know, Base had its sort of its moment. Solana had its moment. Um, Avalanche, to a certain extent, having its moment this morning with the JP Morgan news because it's just. And then what did, what was the, and the other thing that they had the stars arena that was the that was definition f around and find out so uh but yeah it's a it's a double edged sword though as well right because it, you know a profusion of um different like 
tests kind of most of them are going to fail, right? But um, that that sort of level of trial and error also breeds excitement, which feels um, lacking slightly. And which, this gets back to the top yes. of the conversation, which is it feels like, um, you know, uh, I mean, obviously so much has been built out around Ethereum that they're sort of ahead of the curve in some respects when it comes to building. But it seems like it's just a bit... Um, flat right now stalled yeah no, i know i i totally agree um i i'm a person who likes to play with the network and i'm always looking for toys uh even if they're ponzi's like i i just want to see what's possible um i was saying on twitter the other day my my favorite combination of toys right now is the the privy.io wallet mm-hmm. um base uh, base chain transactions and a dot tech domain. Like mm. if I see those three things, then it's something I'm going to dive on and play with because uh, I know it's going to be simple to set up a wallet. I know that I can play for a few cents uh, and I'm kind of, uh, I enter with this expectation of seeing something that is new and interesting. Um, even if it's, even if it's junk, it's still, um, it's still iterating on this, uh, idea of what can be done, what is possible. Uh, and I agree with you that Ether mm. is missing some of that. And everything happens in like waves, right? So, you know, this isn't to say that this couldn't happen, especially with with sort of those network um, um, alterations that are on the horizon there. Um, when you talk about potential new use cases you think are exciting or could be primed for Ether, Ethereum, are any top of mind? Yeah, so DeFi is what everyone thinks of. Um, many people will think of mm-hmm. NFTs. Those are great. Um, they're not really turn-ons for me, um, and that's okay. I'm really looking for applications or use cases that um, that normal people will use. And I think we're moving to this place where gamers are getting over the GPU crunch. Of course, they were angry at all cryptocurrency for years because they couldn't get their hands on GPUs. Um, That has sort of passed since Ethereum switched to proof of stake. And I think that we're soon between the next, you know, one in 30 years going to see a shift of gaming platforms to using in-game NFTs. Uh, If, if we kind of, you know, foster that relationship, I think it will happen with some chain. I hope it's Ethereum. It may not be. Um, The other thing I really see, uh, this idea of um, decentralized society kind of emerging out of lower cost fees. And that is that those are things like um, keeping identity, keeping property records, health records, uh, valuable records that are normally stored either on a centralized database or in a file folder somewhere, um, even things like education records. I expect to see those transferring to... Um, zero knowledge proofs on the Ethereum network, uh, probably on an L2 within, mm-hmm. you know, the foreseeable future. For me, that's really um, value to humanity. I, I don't, I don't see trading as a value to humanity. I know it's what everyone loves. I see things like records management, um, social contracts, social lending. I see those things as bringing real value to humanity. Sort of going back to, um, what the future of Ethereum staking model holds kind of close out the conversation. What, 
In terms of in terms of security and decentralization, what does the future hold for this this model? So maybe optimistic scenario, pessimistic scenario. Yeah, if if you go back and look at uh, watch the video of um, the launch of the I'm sorry the merge video. Um, I guess that would have been two years ago or maybe a year now. I don't I don't recall very well. Um, Vitalik kind of made this this statement that that has really stuck with me, and I haven't really pursued it much, but his idea is proof of stake is a a new framework for for securing Ethereum. It doesn't have to work this way because it has modular pluggability. So um, if we find that, uh, you know, whatever, if we find that, you know, one, one provider is centralizing the chain, we have very modular pluggability that we can modify that. We can change the way the network is secured. Um, and so I think having made this transition to proof of stake, we've really opened up the future for Ethereum to evolve, you know, evolve period. Um, you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin has ossified so early that they, they've really missed opportunities to be a peer-to-peer cashless currency. Um, Ethereum continues to evolve, and I do think that potential uh, is very much in our future. Where can listeners learn more? Are there any resources that you might be able to share? Uh, regarding staking specifically, I really encourage people to check out uh, the eStaker community. Um, you can check that out on Discord. Uh, eStaker.cc is their site that links to all of the resources. There's a Reddit, reddit.com slash r slash eStaker. Um, follow them on Twitter. I, I mentioned that I'm not currently associated with them, but I still hold them in very high regard. They're doing a lot of great work. As a matter of fact, they're holding, they held a two-day conference in Istanbul um, at DevConnect. Uh, all of those talks will go up. And everyone that I've, of course, I'm at home, I've dropped it on YouTube. Uh, they're just such high quality talks of um, really talented people who, um, they give me confidence to know that uh, our sector is continuing to develop in a healthy way. When you see people uh, without much to say, you kind of get get the realization that the sector is stagnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are so many wonderful ideas coming out of that conference that uh, I know we're doing well. What do you think is one of the w- w- red hot debates or point of division? Uh, <laughs> there are a few. I, I would say uh, future centralization risks are one of them. Uh, and, and that is any any operator or mm-hmm. even stake rehypothecator who wants to claim a lot of the network. Sure. Uh, and I would say the other one is MEV, uh, uh, maximum extractable value. Yeah. Like uh, what should happen with MEV? Should it be a lottery? Should there be winners and losers? Um, that's not the way that staking was originally envisioned, uh, but it is an add-on. And mm-hmm. it is a, a very hot topic of what does it mean for our network and uh, how should we respond in a way that maintains incentives and keeps the network healthy? Where do you fall on MEV? Should it be should it be I've, a lottery? I've never uh, so I've never been interested in MEV. In fact, I, I ignored it at first and hoped it would go away. <laughs> um, like everyone else, of course, I hope to win a lottery, but I also I'm not here to gamble. I'm here to build long term sustainable mm-hmm. wealth, and so I don't I don't really think gambling is a thing that benefits anyone. Um, and I, I don't think that, um, so for me, essentially, this is my, my simple way of describing MEV. If, if you walk into a room and you see $10 on the table, 
is it yours to take? Um, and it's not. And MEV is essentially saying, if I walk into a room and I see money on the table, it's mine if I grab it, because if I don't, someone else will. And maybe that's a moralistic take on it, but it it feeds all the way down to uh, the purpose and benefit of MEV in the network. And it really is a, a parasitic feature. That's a great place to close. MEV, parasitic feature. Thanks so much for taking the time. Hopefully next time uh, you come on, maybe I'll be running my own validator at home. Ooh, I would love to hear that. Maybe I'll, uh, but that would require me, I would have to sell my ETH on Fidelity, then wire it to Coinbase and, and buy it on Coinbase and then move the (laughs) coins out because you can't move. I can't move my, my it's, it's, they're not my keys. It's not my keys, not my coins on Fidelity right now until, until they change that, which I think they will. I think they will. They're going to listen to this podcast and they're like, all right, we're, we got to get Frank. (laughs) We're going to get right. (laughs) We got We're going to get right. Um, All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to join the program. Where can folks follow you on the internet? So uh, I mostly hang out two spots. Uh, I'm super fizz on Reddit and I'm super fizz on Twitter. Um, I really need to go to Farcaster. So if you ping me on Farcaster, I'll be so excited because uh, I need to up my game there. It's it's a better solution. We're trying as well. We're doing it here at the scoop. We're we're expanding into. God, why do I sound so boomery right now? We're, um, we're, okay. we're expanding into the web three <laughs> socials. It's probably like this is literally. I sound like probably what people fifteen years ago sounded like. They were like, "Yeah, we just started our the Facebook account." Yeah. Anyway, we're we're there. We're at the bleeding edge. I love you. Thanks so much internet. for taking the time. Yeah. This internet thing is really great. (laughs) All right, take care. (laughs) 